Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. Dave Ulrich is on our podcast today. He wrote the book Victory Through Organization. He wrote it with Dave Kuzinski, Mike Ulrich, and Wayne Brockbank. Uh, Dave has been a little bit of a hero of mine for decades. He's been working in this field of organization development, of impact in organization, of impact of ideas and insights. Um, the This current book, Victory Through Organizations, the subtitle is Why the War for Talent is Failing Your Company and What You Can Do About It. Dave has tremendous insight uh, into what enables us to help an organization make the right kinds of choices so that it will be successful. And and what are the competencies? It's based on a, uh, a study that he's been doing for decades called the Human Resources Competency Study, HRCS, which he'll talk about today. Uh, Dave, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Peter. It's uh, absolutely great to be with you and to connect after uh, seeing the great work you've done in your in your books and your uh, your articles. Thank you. Well, share with us a little bit because this is the basis of so much of your work is is always based on research. The Human Resources Competency Study. Just a little bit of background so that people know what what this research is based on. A number of years ago, we wanted to figure out. It's not about human resources. In fact, the last book that you just got, the hardest paragraph in any book and the hardest sentence, as you probably know, is the first one. And the first sentence is, HR is not about HR, dot, dot, dot. It's about the business. And so we're intrigued, not with what does HR need to know and do, but what does HR need to know and do so that the business wins? We've been intrigued with that for 30 years. We started in 1987. And we've done seven rounds of data collection that are fairly large. The most recent one is 32,000 people, 22 partners around the world from 1,400 business units. And we want to know what are the HR, talent, leadership, and organization practices and the skills of HR people so that businesses are more effective. And, you know, in, in reading your work and, and reading this book in particular, and, and spending a lot of time myself with HR people and organizations, I could tell you that there is such a clear distinction, so obvious, such a gap between the um, HR people who are strategic partners with the business and who are business-minded and, and ones who are uh, sort of vendor-focused and, and, and really trying to sort of respond to the need of a business in an HR way. So the distinction you're making is so visible in the marketplace, and, and I see in the research that you've been able to see the same thing. You know, one of the most fascinating things we published in uh, HBR about a year and a half ago now in the magazine, we, we had data from Corn Ferry of the 15, I think it was, uh, dimensions of a CEO, and they have a huge data set. So we looked at the top 20% or 10% of CEOs. Here's on 15 dimensions their profile. We compared that profile with the head of HR, the head of manuf- or manufacturing, the head of IT, the head of marketing, and the head of HR. Here was the shock. The profile of the CEOs who were most effective matched the head of HR more than any other function. Heads of HR who are good in the top 10 to 20% 
have the same leadership profile as CEOs, more than marketing, more than finance, more than manufacturing, more than IT. Good HR people are really great business people. That's great. I mean, I love, I love that research. I hadn't read that article and I will. Um, you know, in the I book- should tell you, HBR didn't like the conclusion. <laughs> so they turned it from a full article to a research note in the magazine. Because one of our conclusions was the top HR people who also know business well, you've got to, to be a CEO, you've got to know finance, you've got to know strategy, you've got to know customers. Our argument was the top HR people who know those other business requirements are the next generation CEOs. That's a long step. And uh, we ended up getting cut from an article to a research note because they didn't like our conclusion. And why, but I still why, do you think they, why do you think they didn't like that conclusion? Uh, I think it's a big stress for people to say, when you're beginning to look at your next pool of CEOs, obviously look at folks who come through marketing, folks who come through finance, but also look at folks who come through HR. And the data was so fascinating that the skill set of the best CEOs matched the skill set of the best HR people. Anyway, I just think it's a fascinating time for HR. Businesses, I'll, I'll give you the quick headline. Businesses win today when they have access to capital. But you know what? Almost everybody in capital markets can find it, Kickstarter and other things. They win when they have a great strategy, whether it's blue, pink, orange, or yellow. You've got to have a great strategy, but most businesses can figure that out. How do I win? Businesses win when they have great systems. They have great platforms for technology and operations, but most can do that. The most difficult thing to copy, the most difficult thing to differentiate and around strategy execution that you know better than I by far is organization and people. That one's tough. You can, you can copy access to capital. You can copy strategy. You can copy platforms for technology and systems. It is really tough to copy organization and people. It's interesting. Michael Mankins from Bain & Company was recently on this podcast. He wrote Time, Talent, Energy. And, and he was making exactly the same argument, that, that there is no longer a competitive advantage to, to fi- financial markets or capital markets, that really the competitive advantage is can you harness your time, talent, and energy more effectively than your competitor? And, and, and it gets really interesting. What does that look like? And, and, and that's the issue that we created in 1990. My first book is probably still the best title and book that, that nobody's read. It's called Organizational Capability. But let me share some research we did in this Victory Through Organization. I'll pull us back to this book. One of the fascinating questions, if you hold up five fingers on your left hand, you have talent. I have five great people. In your right hand, you have a closed fist. So we began to ask the question, which one of those matters more for business results? Is it the talent? And the war for talent has been going on since 2000, the war for talent, the great study by McKinsey. Is it these five individuals? Or is it the organization? It's the fist. Is it the system? Is it talent or teamwork? Is it people or process? Is it workforce or workplace? The cool thing is we finally got data. We got 1,200 businesses. We measured business outcomes on six dimensions. Then we measured for those 1,200 businesses the quality of people in the business, the left hand. And we measured the quality of the department, the organization. When I teach, I often ask people to divide 10 points. Which of those two, the talent or the organization, has the most impact on business results? Our results actually shocked me. Four to one organization. Eight to two. Organization has four times the impact on business results than talent. 
in order to fight a war, you need people. You need time, talent, energy. In order to win a war, you got to have organizations that good people don't win. And then we started to study this, and I'll be quiet in just a minute. Is that true, not just in organizations, but elsewhere? We looked at sports, which is a great uh, case study. And, and in almost all sports, in team sports, in soccer, the winner of the golden boot is on the team that wins the World Cup 20% of the time. In hockey, the leading scorer is on the team that wins the Stanley Cup 20% of the time. I love basketball. In basketball, the winner of the uh, uh, most uh, scores the most points is on the team that wins the NBA championship 20% of the time. In movies, the winner of the Academy Award for actor or actress is in the movie of the year 20% of the time. I even studied Spice Girls. And if you've ever looked at me, that's a stretch. A band outperforms the individual soloist 80% of the time. You know what's fascinating is there's a lot of push in the HR field about we deliver great people. Amen, amen, amen. You've got to have people. But it's the organization that ultimately wins in the marketplace. So two questions about that, Dave. One is, how are you, just briefly, how are you assessing the um, talent of the people versus the talent of the organization? We have measures, and that's the beauty of big data sets. We have 4,000 HR professionals. We measure their competence on 123 items by their associates. So we have metrics of what set of skills do these people have. Not self-report. Self-report is very dangerous. We have 28,000 people who measure their skills. Then we measure the quality of organization. How well does the organization deliver this set of capabilities? And so we have measures of capability as well as measures of individual competence. And um, what uh, the second question is, what constitutes the organization beyond a collection of talented individuals? This is such a cool question, and it's one I've played with for a long time. I think there's three waves in organization. Wave one is you look at an organization, you see the morphology, you see the structure, you see the roles, you see the boxes, you see the charts. When we tell people, draw an organization, almost everybody draws boxes and arrows. That's the re-engineering work. That's the restructuring work. That's the delayering work. Wave two is alignment. You have the Jay Galbraith star model, which is so good, or the 7S model, or the McKinsey Work Health model. You have an alignment model. Wave three is organization is capability. Jay Galbraith, just before he passed away, and I'm so sorry he couldn't get this, he said, I have five points of my star, but what I'm really after is what he called org design criteria. Well, those org design criteria are the capabilities of an organization. I love Marriott Hotels because their capability is great service. I love Apple because their capability is design and innovation in design. I love Amazon because their capability is consistent delivery. Organizations are not structure or alignment systems, they're capabilities. And so we look at an organization and try to do capability audits. What are the capabilities your organization needs to win in this marketplace? And, and um, you know, what have you found? And, uh, you know, we were talking briefly about big data sets and, and, and data, and you, you found some interesting data about data. We did. Uh, let me get that with two ways. We identified 12 possible. We wrote an article in HBR called Competing Through Capabilities, and we kept pursuing that. We did a fascinating, again, study, and we love the data across these businesses. We looked at here's 12 capabilities a company has, and here's how well they do them. And so you've got effectiveness and impact on the business. 
what we found is one of the capabilities that was the most critical in business impact was what we called external sensing or data. We dug into that. And what we found was today in the HR field, in the information field, the shiny object is analytics. A few years ago, it was some other stuff, but today it's my new shiny object. I'm going to put an ornament in my house. It's analytics. When we did our research, we found that HR people or business people and organizations that did data didn't produce better business results. It's really counterintuitive. We finally have done analytics on analytics and they don't produce business results unless it's external information that the goal of analytics is to provide information that has business impact. And so we said real quickly, there's four waves of analytics. One is a scorecard. I wrote a book called with great authors, an HR scorecard in the nineties. Today, that would be an atrocious book because HR is not about HR. Second analytics, um, give me insights. That's big data. That's good, but it's still insights inside the company. Third analytics lets me make smart intervention. That's better. Fourth analytics should start with business impact because it's about external information that drives the business. So if I'm a married hotel and my goal is service, I want to know how customers measure guest experience. If that's the business impact, then I look at HR data. What will be the data that will drive that customer or guest experience or increase our net promoter score? But I don't start with HR data or HR insights. I start with guest experience. Got it. And, 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 you know, you're sort of defining the outcome that you're trying to achieve and then only looking at the data that either supports or detracts from it. And yeah. And let me give another one. That's so cool. You and many of us have been excited about leadership. And finally, what's an outcome a company cares about? Well, we care about our stock price. There's a resounding duh. So when you look at market value, you get an interesting quirk. Two firms in the same industry have the same earnings, but they don't have the same stock price. Well, why is that? Well, one of the issues is a big field called intangibles. So a company says, I try to increase my stock price, I make money. That's great. I have intangibles. I have a great strategy, a great brand, a great industry position. That's great. But what we discovered in a lot of our research is one of the drivers of that important outcome is leadership. So in another piece we've done, We've created a leadership capital index that you can now go in and Moody's index measures your financial discipline. Am I going to give my investor in a discipline with their financial return? We can now measure your leadership capital and show an investor that the quality of leadership has an outcome on the results the investors care about. I want to circle back to something that you said um, that is, I think, both profound and and, and uh, leads me curious, um, which is that HR people really have this, you know, great HR people have the same profile as great CEOs and that HR people really should be a funnel to CEOs. And, and I'm, I'm going to link this to a couple of chapters in, in your current book because the, my, my two favorite chapters in some way were the chapter six where you talk about the credible activist and chapter seven where you talk about the strategic positioner. You're not talking about them as, as, as models, you're talking about the competencies that in order to really get a seat at the table, you have to be a credible activist. In order to do something with that seat at the table, in order to make an impact on the organization, you have to be a strategic positioner. And I'm wrapping all of this into my question, which is, 
of all of the CEOs I know, have met, have worked with, which, you know, has got to be in the hundreds, I've never met one who grew out of HR. And, and so my question is, what can we do to close that gap? What can we do to show up powerfully in an organization with all of the capacity and capability that we have, whether you're in HR or in, in you know, another element, a part of the organization, and given that most organizations are matrixed these days and that your power comes from personal power more than positional, what, what are some of the things that people could do to really show up powerfully in their roles in the way that they could line up to be CEO or they're acting like CEO in a way that's supportive of the organization? Uh, two caveats before I answer that. The first one is I'm going to push back a little bit on the assumption. I think sometimes people say, if you can't become CEO, you don't have impact. I think that's really false. I, I think it almost belittles the role of chief HR officer. Good heads of HR have incredible impacts around talent, leadership, organization that helps companies win. And you don't have to leave the function to be good. Second, there aren't tons, but we have Lisa Weber, the head of MetLife. We have Mary Barra, the head of General Motors. We have Nigel Travis, the head of Duncan Brands. We have uh, Anne Mulcahy, the Anne Mulcahy, who is the head of Xerox. Uh, we have Bernard Fontana, the head of Arvira. There are cases where heads of HR have moved Bob Wright, who was at NBC, the head of NBC, had moved. But that's not the goal. The goal is to get HR professionals who have insights that help the organization win. And we think they help an organization win with insights on three things. One is talent. And, and our research shows organization matters more. But it would be hard for, well, maybe for you. But if I took myself and uh, 10 other people and was on a soccer team, no matter how good we worked as a team, we wouldn't win the World Cup. <laughs> I'm just not that good of an athlete. So you got to have good talent and you got to have committed talent. You got to have engaged talent. You also got to have great organization. You got to build systems and capabilities that make the whole more than the parts. And you got to have great leaders who have great vision and, and pernacity. Per, per, and HR folks bring insight into those skill sets that help organizations win. And, and when they bring those insights, they help the discussion focus on what needs to happen to turn strategy into results. This is your area where you're so good and you've written about it. Strategy is not a strategy. Strategy execution, if I can quote someone, is not a strategy problem, but a people, and I would add an organization problem, that, that we know where we're going. The problem is getting the organization and people together to help us make that happen. So what I love that. Thank you. And thank you for the correction. And I have to expand the the um, number and quality of CEOs that I know. But I also really take to heart what you said, which is that a um, powerful, impactful head of HR or frankly, you know, a, a, a senior leader in the organization, no matter what they are, is 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 critical to moving the organization forward if they have the right kinds of competencies that can have the impact and take their function and and apply the the knowledge and capability of their function to the outcomes that the organization needs to achieve. So, you know, could talk just a few minutes about because I'm I I I think you wrote about it really nicely. This credible activist and the strategic positioner. Yeah. Because I think it's really fun. I think getting well, to the well, table is important, and then what you do yeah. there is important. Again, the place we like to start 
and, and you've done the same work. And again, the place we like to start is an outcome. What's the outcome we're trying to, to create? And there's three in HR. One, and, and this isn't just HR, it's any uh, staff group or even business leaders. One outcome is getting access to the discussion. That's getting to the table, the metaphor, being seen as credible. What we discovered is you're not given access unless you're a credible activist. What that means is people want to spend time with you. I can assume, Peter, you've had experiences where you've coached some of these great CEOs and they begin quickly to connect with you. They trust you. They see you. You're credible. But you also know how to push them. You're not just a, um, a, 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 an agreement person, a syncophant. You're somebody who has an activist. You have a point of view. You're willing to be proactive. What we found is HR folks who are credible activists get invited to discussions. Then the second question is, now that I'm in the discussion, what's an outcome? Who do I represent? Who gets better because I'm in the room? Who's improved? And what we discovered is there are stakeholders to an organization. Some of those stakeholders are the employees. If HR is involved in business dialogue at the table, the metaphor, and they want to serve the employees, stay a credible activist. I'm the voice of the employee. I help the employee get heard in the discussion. But if HR wants to serve the customers, the investors, the communities, the business stakeholders, they've got to shift gears. Credible activists get you in the room and it lets you serve employees. But to serve those business customers, you've got to be a strategic positioner. And here's what that is. Again, I'm, I'm synthesizing a lot here. One, you've got to know the business. You've got to know the language of business, finance, marketing, strategy. Two, you've got to know how your company makes money. What's the money proposition? What's our strategy? How do we win? Where do we play? Number three, you've got to really know your stakeholders. Who are our key customers? Who are our investors? Who are our communities? What do they want? How do we win with them? And four, to be a strategic positioner, you've got to know the changing business context. What are the social, technical, economic, political trends that will give us opportunities in the future? When HR people can work up those four stages, the first one is just knowing the language. You've got to know business, got to know strategy, got to know stakeholders, and you've got to see what that future looks like so that you can help us play to win. Those strategic positioners deliver value to customers and investors in unique ways. Um, I, I want to um, give a shout out to your business literacy test, which you have on, on page 156, but you, you know, you, um, you talk about, and, and also you're stepped or steeped. I don't know whether you pronounce it stepped or steeped, but there's only one P in it. So maybe it's steeped um, framework questions because they are um, there. You know, one of the big questions I have is to what extent is this developable? I mean, in what way can you, David McClelland, who I don't know if you knew him. Uh, uh, I know his, everyone knows his work. It's phenomenal work. work. And so he was asked once, um, uh, it, can I develop achievement orientation in people? You know, can I develop the drive to achieve in people? And his answer is still one of my favorite answers of all time, which said, you can teach a turkey to climb a tree, but you're better off hiring a squirrel. And, you know, uh, it, I, I love that's it. So good. And, and it's, and it's, um, you know, and sometimes, you know, there's squirrels you have to teach to climb a tree, you know, people who have the capability, but they still need the development. But you, you create this framework or just a series of questions that say, you know, here are some things you should be looking out for that can help you to understand the field uh, that, that you're operating in. My question is, again, in terms of development, 
that you can you can get gather all this information and you can see tr- and and you can see the data but trends aren't always so simple to interpret and i'm wondering what you've seen in people or you know both in terms of capability to develop that view of forecasting and sense or seeing the trends or understanding what's going on in terms of adding strategic value or whether you've noticed anything about the people who are most successful at doing that uh your questions are Oh, good. We could go hours with this. Let me try to replay back your questions. Two points real quick. Point number one, McClelland was so smart. I never had the privilege of meeting him, but everybody who's thoughtful has read his work and I hope grounded in his insights. There is research, nature versus nurture, born versus bred. And in general, the research is 50-50. I like to talk about the nature stuff. What you're born with is a predisposition. Uh, Many people have done the Myers-Briggs, introvert, extrovert. I am predisposed to be an introvert, but I can learn the skills of an extrovert. And so that 50-50 is so helpful. That's the turkey-squirrel question. Um, You're predisposed to be a turkey or a squirrel. You can learn some of the other skills. Second, in learning the other skills, the other 50%, sometimes you need frameworks. And I'll do it with an anecdote. We were with a group recently, and we said, when you look at the changing marketplace for your industry, what are the trends that are weak signals that are, that are happening? The group came up with 10 of them. All 10 were around technology, internet of things, digitalization, new technology. And I said, you know, you've done a brilliant job going deep into one of six trends. That's why, and I don't care if you call it stepped or steep, just call it something. You know, there's also trends in your industry around social trends, lifestyle around family, urbanization, religion, well-being, diversity. There's technical trends. There's economic trends around global markets and new competitors, new economic cycles. There's clearly political trends. You can't turn the television on today and not recognize political regulatory shifts. There's environmental trends around social responsibility, community. And there's demographic trends around age, education, and millennials. This group immediately turned to technology because it gets a lot of airtime. And you missed a whole bunch of stuff. And so when we look at SCPD, we gave that to business leaders when they visit a, uh, a country or when they try to go into a new market to say, look at the weak signals in these areas that enable you then to begin to predict what you can do differently. And, and I imagine that the, you know, the more time you spend both playing with it and talking with people about it, the more clarity you end up getting to some degree. Oh, it's really fun. And what's fun about weak signals is they're weak signals. For example, social trends. If I'm in the beverage industry, people want food that has less calories. And so the governor or the mayor of New York can even try to prescribe some of that. So how do I begin to play in that space if I'm in a carbonated beverage space? Because that's a weak signal that's coming out. And I got to say this thing. I was going to say it earlier and I let it go because I was talking too much. In the world of data and information, there's two kinds of data in the world. Some of the data is called structured data. It's puzzle solving. It's statistics and a spreadsheet. I love statistics. My PhD is basically statistics. I did uh, numerical taxonomies. I love data. It gives me insights. But 80% of the data in the world is mysteries, not puzzles. It's unstructured observation. Good HR people should not only be analysts of the statistics, I can do the analysis and figure out insights, we should also become anthropologists. A great anthropologist looks at stuff other people don't see. 
and they begin to look at weak signals. I bet you spend your time. In fact, I'd love to ask you, Peter. Weak signals is you hear something, and it just goes bing, 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 bing in your head. And it may not have a lot of data, but it's a note. It's an insight. It's an observation. And you go, holy smokes, I got to dig deeper into that one. I, I'm jealous, Peter, of your job. You get to talk to smart people all the time. I bet once in a while you hear something that just goes, whoa, that's a good one. And it may not be data-based in terms of traditional empirical data, but it's an observation that just grabs you. Does that resonate with you at all? It resonates with me from this very conversation. Well, don't do me as a conversation. And, and by the way, this is why I love to be in the field. I, I was talking to a head of HR, uh, happened to be a company called Flextronics, now Flex. He came into HR for manufacturing and operations, and he said, Dave, every change effort, and again, you would know this in your strategy work, has an S-curve. You start small, you move up, and you flatten out. And he said, I'm new to HR, but in my 30 days, all my HR people have talked about is talent, 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 talent. I think we're 70 to 80% up the S-curve. We know where to find people. We know how to bring them in. We know how to orient them. We know how to pay them. We know how to train them. And he said, here's my problem with Flextronics. If we don't change our culture, we're going to have great people. That was my left hand with five fingers who don't work well together. My right hand is a fist. And he said, on the culture curve, we don't even know how to think about it yet. We're 10% up. And he said to me, why do HR people spend all their time on talent when we're pretty good at it and almost none of their time on culture? And inside my head was going, bing, 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 duh. And, and he just did, Paul is his name. He captured for me some of the, the issues I've been ruminating on. That for me is the 80% of data that's found in observation. And we need to learn to become uh, anthropologists, to observe what other people experience but don't yet recognize. It's great. I'll give you one, actually, that I've been simmering. There's been simmering oh, been, with I'm me waiting for that. recently, yeah. which is that the um, everyone's always been busy. But the level of busyness that I'm seeing in organizations right now is allow and, and, the, and the multiple priorities. So the overwhelming amount of things that people have to do and the overwhelming number of priorities that people have is, is leading to a situation where, and it's not that people are hiding behind multiple priorities, it's that the priorities are hiding them. And so everybody's working very, very hard. They're all accomplishing something, but because of how busy they are and because of the multiple priorities, that all of the work they're doing isn't moving the ship forward. It's not, and it's, it's related to what you're talking about in terms of talent versus organization, that you've got incredible talent working on important problems, but because none of that work is clearly effectively aligned and because everybody could so be so busy on real priorities, but that differ from each other, that the organizations are struggling to move forward. You know, somebody could draw a lot of arrows and then put a big arrow around it that gives you an integrated overall focus. That was a joke. That, that's your work, and it lets you know I did a little homework with you. There but, you go. Uh, but, I'm, but it's funny because I'm, I, I, I thank you, and I, and, I, um, and I definitely, like, that's led me to the model, but I'm seeing it even in clients that we're working with now that we're working with the, with the big arrow system, and I'm still seeing how, how extreme this problem has gotten and, and how, um, you know, the, 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 the necessity to say no to things, it seems to be 
a you know a, a critical strategic capability. And so the the next question, and there's a line that I really like, and it's kind of a historical religious line. Yonder is matter unorganized. There's out there this this complicated scene of complexity and confusion. You've just seen it. The next question is, who have we seen, you or me, that seems to manage their way through that? The next question is, Kurt Lewin once said it, and it's brilliant, nothing is as useful as a good theory. So don't just jump to a practice. What's an approach to managing that? And one of the approaches is your, your big arrow. Take a big arrow and have a shared purpose with different agendas. That's great. Are there three or four others? And then we begin to search through. For example, I love your question, and I don't have an answer to it, but one of the pieces is, the um, economist that won a Nobel Prize, Herb Simon, satisfies, F-I-C-E. Not everything worth doing is worth doing well. Some things are so important to do, they're worth doing poorly. So when you're overwhelmed with to-dos, 60 to 70% are worth doing poorly, just get them done. And, and now I'll stop with that. What we're trying to illustrate is listening as an anthropologist to a problem that doesn't have a solution and then beginning to create some ideas that may help us resolve it. That for me is great external sensing and great HR folks and great business leaders both tend to have that knack. Dave, I could talk to you for hours. I, I, uh, you know, I try to keep these podcasts to, to, you know, less than 30 minutes and we've hit the mark, but, but I, I want to um, certainly continue this conversation and maybe we can have it on the podcast more uh, in the future, but also, you know, outside the podcast, I'm happy to continue it. His book, his most recent book, he's written many, is Victory Through Organization, Why the War for Talent is Failing Your Company and What You Can Do About It. Dave Ulrich, thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. What a privilege, Peter, to connect. May we both learn from our future. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.